Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great, Anne. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited to podcast with you today. Um, hey, you know, I just want to I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the articles that we review on this podcast and the clinical question articles that are reviewed for the clinical question blog through IABLE. Do you notice that there's a difference in those studies? <laughs> yeah. So I um, I was going to thank you for sending me some um, abstracts this time since I was pretty busy and you're always so good about collecting um, studies to review. And I was like, oh my gosh, I hope people had their coffee. Some of this data, some of the stuff is really geeky, which I love, um, but it's, yeah. it's really kind of, some of it's kind of new to me. So I was like, this is really interesting. Nice. Yeah. But for those of you who are listening, I just want to point out that the articles that we tend to review for the podcast uh, are not, not necessarily ready for uh, changes in clinical practice, or maybe there is, maybe they're beginning to give us ideas on how we can change our clinical practice. Whereas the articles that are used uh, for the clinical question of the week are largely meant to really inform clinical practice because they tend to be policy statements, large systematic reviews, um, or just really great randomized controlled trials. So if you're looking for information to review for something like your board exam, whether it's for the North American Board of Breastfeeding and Lactation Medicine, or even for the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners, the IBCLC exam, uh, I encourage you to review the clinical question of the week, which is at the IABLE website, and that's free. Uh, so enjoy. Okay, so for today's podcast, uh, I want to first talk about secretory activation because I, I've been kind of fascinated with uh, measuring this and how we can actually use this in clinical practice. So the first study that I want to go that I want to review regarding secretory activation is entitled Novel At-Home Mother's Milk Conductivity Sensing Technology, this is on the title, as an identification system of a delay in milk secretory activation progress and early breastfeeding problems. It's a feasibility assessment. So basically, this was a study that wanted to look at a tool that can measure secretory activation at home. And so the authors are, uh, Haramadi is the first author, uh, and Fierso and others. And this was um, published um, in a journal called JMIR Pediatric Parent in 2023. So first, I just want to talk about how we can measure secretory activation. And I know that you are aware of this. Uh, a lot of studies in the past have typically, when they've looked at um, the factors that affect secretory activation, which is the term for the milk coming in, really have basically asked the subjects when their milk, when their breasts feel fuller, heavier, 
or firm or uncomfortable. And that's the marker that they use for when the milk comes in. But there's a more scientific way of measuring this. Um, and we should be using the scientific method all the time because you and I both know that people sometimes don't know that the milk has come in, right? Sometimes you ask, uh, do your breasts feel heavier? And you know, you've seen them on like day four and they'll say, well, not really. And then you watch the baby go to the breast and the baby's like chugging. <laughs> the baby is like already back to birth weight. And you think, yeah, your milk has come in, uh, but they just have so much storage capacity. They don't even feel heavy, right? You've probably seen that. Yeah, and I, I just, I can't resist saying from personal experience, like I remember the moment when I was like, well, let me just say, there's a lot of weird things that happen when you have a baby. It's weird to be an adult and feel things in your body you've never felt before, like someone kicking you from the inside. And I remember this moment when my breasts got heavy and I like was like, it's just like gravity got stronger on one part of my body was like the sensation that I felt in that moment. It was super strange. Yeah, it's almost like you're like lost your center of gravity. Suddenly you're leaning over. <laughs> right. It's like, great. I think something's happening. Right, exactly. Um, so a more scientific way of measuring secretory activation is simply to take a sample of the milk and measure the sodium level. Um, and in some studies, they'll measure the sodium potassium ratio. Uh, and so what happens is that when lactation happens, so after the baby's born, there's initially colostrum, which is fairly high in sodium, uh, and that's because the cells are not well organized yet in the alveoli. So there are these fences between the cells called tight junctions, and the tight junctions have to get themselves organized in order for there to be an increase in milk production. And those tight junctions stay disorganized until progesterone drops, uh, which is the hormone that needs to drop with that loss of the placenta uh, to bring the milk in. We know that. And what's really happening is that progesterone prevents the tight junctions from getting organized. And once those fences or tight junctions are organized between the cells, then stuff from, you know, components from the parent's circulation can't get into the milk com compartment because the cells then guard what goes in, they tightly regulate what goes into the milk, they start making a lot of lactose, and voila, you have this milk production. And because the cells are really strict about what goes into the milk, they restrict the sodium. So the sodium level drops in the milk, and that's our marker that there is mature milk production. And so, uh, so that sodium level, like generally people tend to agree that the sodium level, once it's at 16, millimoles per liter, that's kind of the marker that there's mature milk. So this company has been using this tool, which has been used in research and other studies, to uh, look at samples of milk to, you know, determine like, uh, when does that, when does that sodium level become low to signal that there is mature milk? Um, and so what they say is that the secretory activation or the coming in of the milk um, is going to be earlier if someone starts breastfeeding earlier and is breastfeeding really often or pumping really often. So we're going to see that sodium level drop earlier um, with more milk production um, if they're uh, doing the work, you know, very uh, intensively early. But if they're not nursing very often, 
um, or pumping very often, if they're not nursing, it's going to, they're going to have a delay in their milk production and that sodium level is going to stay high for a while. And this makes sense because I mentioned how prolactin is important to close the tight junctions, but so is uh, prolactin. I, I'm sorry, I meant to say progesterone is important. Progesterone has to drop to close the tight junctions, but prolactin has to stay really high. Prolactin also plays a really important role in closing the tight junctions. And so if someone is nursing really often, pumping really often, their prolactin level is going to stay high, and uh, that's going to keep those tight junctions closed. So what these researchers did is they developed a smartphone-enabled sensor that allows people to measure the sodium in their milk to determine um, you know, where they are at in terms of their secretory activation. And so the reason that they thought this is important is because, so they're in Israel, and what they notice is that a lot of women initiate breastfeeding in Israel, but then by the first month, they're supplementing with formula. And the number one reason for doing that is because women perceive that they don't have enough milk and that they need to supplement. But the problem is, is that supplementing with formula may delay secretory activation, especially if they start supplementing pretty early because they're not going to be nursing as often unless they're doing a lot of pumping. Um, and I don't know if any country pumps as much as people in the United States. <laughs> and we're pump crazy here. Um, and so, uh, so they basically, you know, don't exactly say how this would be used clinically, um, but uh, nevertheless, they wanted to look at a bunch of data that they collected. So what they did is they collected a whole bunch of data on sodium levels among 592 mothers um, who used this tool between July 2018 and October 2020. Um, they didn't have a control group. They just used the data from the milk that was collected. And the way that they collected this data is they had 30 lactation consultants who they gave the tool to and said, hey, when you see your clients, can you measure milk levels, you know, measure the milk sodium level? Um, and then they gave it directly to 37 pregnant women and told them how to use it, and then they could use it postpartum. So they collected all of these samples. They had like... Um, 1,500 samples, and they analyzed the data, and every sample was associated with um, a description of how much milk they had. So uh, they had three categories of people. They had people who were exclusively breastfeeding, and they were considered the normal group. They never used supplementation. And then there was a group that had low supply, which was like a term that was used by the lactation consultants, um, and this is a group that used formula. But they didn't really have a other like a cause of that low supply. And then the third group was the breastfeeding problem group. Like there wasn't a specific diagnosis given for breastfeeding problems, but they just had breastfeeding problems and they tended to supplement. And then they looked at their sodium levels too. I have so many questions, but I'm going to let yeah. you keep going. Okay. So uh, basically rather than giving like the raw data of like what their sodium level was, they made a nomogram of uh, sodium levels and then gave the sodium levels like a percent mature maturation. So if someone was at a one, it means that their sodium level was really low and their milk came in. And if it was under one, like 0.2 or 0.4 or 0.6, that's how close they were to one in terms of being, you know, having mature milk. 
So it was like, you're 20% there, you're 40% there, you're 60% there, you know, close to having your milk fully come in basically. So what they found is that those who had the lower numbers, meaning the lower maturation numbers, they were more likely to have early breastfeeding problems, either, either, either labeled as early breastfeeding problems or they were labeled as low milk production. So what they found is that uh, if they had, it was, it's pretty clear in the data, if they had low milk production or breastfeeding problems, they did not have that super low sodium level. Their, their milk maturity just wasn't there yet. Um, but they, you know, again, you couldn't categorize like what the cause was of the low production. Like, was it that they had, you know, next one on place or something like that? You know, it didn't. They but didn't... What was the relative time from the delivery? Like it was completely random? It was they the they were the samples that they reported on were collected within the first 20 days postpartum. Sure. But like when I think about using this test, I think about like, okay, the average, you know, sort of secretary activation for a first time um, parent is like 70 hours. And mm -hmm. so what does it mean if somebody's day 19 versus day, you know, five? And does that mean like they're never gonna get there? Or if suddenly they, you know, we, I don't know. I, I, yeah. It's very so, confusing because it's not the way I normally think about it. I think of it as a, a process of unless you're like very low, like you're still at colostrum levels of production. Yeah. So maybe another way to describe this um, is that when they look at the day from birth and what that maturity level was, uh, the maturity index, they found that for the group that was exclusively breastfeeding, um, who never had a supplement, that by day six, um, the the average the average person who is exclusively breastfeeding were at that ninety percent of the normal of what would be considered you know mature milk or normal sodium level. So by day six, you know they they were there. But the group, but then when you look at the group with low milk production they even by day 10, they were like at 70% of full secretory activation. Um, and they were even by day 20, they were at 90%. So they didn't actually get close to that 90% until around day 16 to 20. So they, it took them a lot longer to get to that uh, full secretory activation uh, and they didn't even get to full yet, even by day 20, whereas the group which was exclusively breastfeeding was pretty much at that 100%, like totally like sodium of 16 or under. Uh, they were there and stayed very steady starting at around day 12. Um, wow. This is so interesting. I wish there was a lot more data about like, you know, if you're in the low group, what types of volumes you're having, because I think it's so interesting and also it really begs the question, like the clinical question, right? Of like the people that we see who have PCOS, who are sort of struggling for weeks and then they maybe get go through and then they have this big change in their volume. Right. And that's the thing. That's what we, that's, that's to me, one of the most important things is like looking at the different reasons for low production 
and being able to uh, see like the effect of an intervention, like giving them metformin, giving them go-through, giving them myo-inositol and seeing, you know, and then checking their secretory activation every day and seeing how that changes. But it seems like that's such a better measure than asking like, oh, do you feel like your breasts are heavier today? Or how much more did you pump today? And of course, in the United States, we're getting pump reports up the wazoo, right? Everyone brings in their pump report. Um, I mean, like this could be an amazing um, test perhaps someday for insufficient glandular tissue, because like you describe often that patient who like really is making, you know, what seems like mature milk at small volumes, they feel very full, but then when they remove it, it's a small quantity. But if we look at that and we say, look, you, you're, you know, you're, you, you're at one, you're full secretory activation your breasts are doing the best they can with the gland you've got. Like that would be really interesting as opposed to that person where you're like, oh, it looks like maybe you haven't completely achieved secretory activation. Exactly. And that's why I think it would be so helpful because sometimes, you know, you know, people want to know, right. They want to know where they're at. And so if you have someone on day 10 who has low production, let's say they're making 150 ml, um, and uh, 150 ml per day on day 10, you think, okay, this is really low production. What's going on? And so if they, let's say they had an exponent placed, right? And you're trying to convince the OB, this is not just low production because they have low glandular tissue or whatever reason you think that it just happens to people. And you check their sodium level and it's still really high. And you're, you can say, yeah, there's a blockage here. Like you've got to get that next one taken out. Versus if that sodium level is really low, yeah, and they may have low glandular tissue. Um, but I always feel bad when I see someone on day 10 or 12 and they have low milk production and they don't, you know, maybe, okay, they didn't have gestational diabetes. They didn't have polycystic ovarian syndrome. They may have not passed the one hour GTT, but they passed the three hour. So they didn't have gestational diabetes, but you get a sense of like, oh, maybe there is some insulin, you know, more insulin resistance than what other people would have. And if I say, well, I think it's low glandular tissue, and I give them something like metformin, my own acetal, and they gradually get up to sufficiency by three months, they're not really low glandular tissue, they're insulin resistant, right? Um, there's something else going on. And so then I gave them the wrong diagnosis and I feel bad about that. And I feel like stupid. And, um, you know, even though, you know, I I mean, it's not just about me, right? But it's it's so frustrating to not be able to give people the answers. I mean, I had a bad day yesterday. I came home and I was just like, I just didn't know the answer when I was with this patient. It was so frustrating. Yeah, it's, I know it's so hard. I, I, I hate that. But you know, when you think about it, I mean, we're not so bad. I mean, I think you and I do a pretty good job of being able to make diagnoses. I mean, I feel really bad for people who have multiple miscarriages. And I'll say, is there a reason for that? Or is there a reason for the infertility? And oftentimes they're like, I don't know, they just say un- undiagnosed, they don't know. And I'm like, that probably happened a lot more in some other fields than it happens, you know, for us. Um, so sure. uh, I, so I, I want to go, did you have any other comments about this study? I mean, I just, I thought this one might be a good place to throw in a um, complaint that I have about sometimes these things then are marketed directly to patients. And I was giving a talk a week or two ago and somebody raised their hand at the end and they like, they said like, 
what do you think about this new lab test that's being sold online for parents to test the caloric content of their milk? And I was like, I am horrified to hear that that is a thing that people are now, because like people, I just feel like they're being like, it's, it's predatory. Some of the things that people are being sold, like, you know, you've got your 5,000 pillows and your snoo and your this and your swing and it's just too much yeah I mean I think that it just undermines people's confidence you know um it just so I worry a little bit about what this will mean if it is marketed to consumers I think it really is um not ready for prime time even for us but it's such an interesting conversation yeah so there's this other study that was published in breastfeeding medicine, which is also about sodium potassium ratios, um, using this method to look at the effectiveness of pumps among mothers who had premature infants. So this article was published in breastfeeding medicine, volume 18, uh, so July of this year, and it was entitled The Utilization of Sodium Concentration in Human Milk from Pump-Dependent Mothers of preterm infants as a measure of milk production. So this study, uh, the first author is Yuan, Y-U-A-N, and was done in China. Um, So the researchers wanted to see if secretory activation was faster based on the kind of pump that they were using. So this was a randomized controlled trial of 66 mothers of premature infants who gave birth between February and December of 2018. And they were assigned to one of three groups. Either the group with a hospital, either they were given a hospital grade pump and told to use that for the first 14 days. The second group was uh, they were given a hospital grade pump to use for day one through five. And then they switched to a personal electric pump from day six to 14. And then the third group was a control group and they just use a personal pump. They never use the hospital grade pump. So they say that everyone was shown how to use the pumps. And uh, those who were given the hospital grade pump had to sign a a rental contract with the research team, which I thought was interesting, um, that maybe they had to pay to be in the study. It wasn't clear. Um, I would have, as a reviewer, I would have asked about that. Um, The hospital grade pump, um, they they didn't say which one it was, but they said it had an initiation and a maintenance program. So they, they used the initiation program until they were consistently expressing 20 ml per pump, and then they were switching to maintenance. And for those who never got to 20 ml per pump by day five, they were told to switch to maintenance anyway by day five. But otherwise, they didn't really have a, defini- a definition of pumping, such as like checking flange size or making sure that the people, that the subjects were comfortable, which I think is a major fault. And we really need to make sure that pumping has a definition to it, right? Uh, they did try to encourage people to pump eight to 12 times a day. And then they were told to pump for two minutes beyond when the milk ceased flowing as a standard. Um, what they did is they tracked daily amount of milk expressed and checked the sodium level in the milk twice a day. Although sometimes people like, especially early on, they didn't have the one to two ml um, from a milk expression to actually check the sodium level. So that was a limitation sometimes. But essentially what they found is that 95% of the mothers in the in group one who were given the hospital grade pump for two weeks Um, 95% of them had milk volume over 500 ml a day by day 14, whereas 
82% of those in group two, where they use the hospital grade pump for five days and then the personal pump, they came to uh, only 82% came to volume by day 14. Um, and then among the controls, 45% got to that coming to volume or 500 ml by day 14. So again, they they called 500 ml per day by day 14 as quote unquote coming to volume. On day five, 73% um, of people in group one and group two who use that hospital grade pump um, had mature sodium levels, um, but only 41% of controls had a mature sodium level by day five. So in other words, they saw signatory activation being, you know, being achieved on day five for the hospital grade pump people. Um, but for those who use a personal pump, they didn't get to their secretory activation by day five. And they found that the, the higher the milk volume, the closer the sodium level was to maturity. So those who like jackrabbited up, who like, you know, by day four had, you know, really high milk production. So like they, they gave an example that uh, the group with the highest volume of milk had this dramatic drop in the sodium level by day four, um, and then it leveled off. Uh, and they had they were making 500 ml by day six, and they were up to 1300 ml per day by day 14. So the really high milk production people hit secretory activation super fast. But the group with the lowest milk volume had a really slow decline in that sodium. And by day 14, they were averaging about 226 ml per day. Um, the other thing about those who had low, low um, milk production, uh, both in this study and the previous study, is that they found that the sodium level would bounce around. Like it wouldn't, it wasn't just staying low, but it'd be a little higher one day, lower one day, higher one day, lower one day. It just wasn't, you know, for those who had high milk production, the sodium level steadily drops and then it just maintains this low level while this, while they're continuing to make all this milk. But for those with low production who are really struggling, that sodium level is bouncing up and down. So there's something else going on, you know, health-wise for them. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is, is there a difference in secretory activation between one breast and another? Like, does one breast have their milk come in faster than the other? And um, in the, the first study, the one from Israel, there was one participant in this one person's data where there was a difference in the two breasts, but they said specifically in this study from China um, that there was not a difference in the two breasts. They never really found a difference between left and right breast. They need to have a personal pump on one breast and a hospital pump on the other breast. Yes. Oh, that, <laughs> that, is, that is fascinating. That, that's, that is the way to do it, right? Because then you take out these other factors and you're just looking at pump characteristics. But no one I, would consent to that study. But the thing is that if this is all about maintaining that really high prolactin with a hospital grade pump, then you you're still going to get. You but know, I think, but the, but that's the question: Is it the really high prolactin, or are because they didn't test these people's prolactin? Maybe yeah. they had the same prolactin, and it was that the effectiveness of removal and those you know, autocrine factors in the breast were really, really important. I mean, one of the questions I had while you were talking was if that sodium level is jumping around, does part of it have to do with the 
edema, the extracellular edema that's happening in that breast, because, you know, you probably seen this, you go to hand express and like the milk coming out of different ducts is different colors because one of them hasn't been flowing, even though this person's been pumping regularly, but that one I've, you know, it's like the swelling around it, it's like somebody standing on the garden hose and that one duct hasn't been participating. And now you get it to sort of start to flow and it's a completely different color milk been sitting in there and the, you know, osmolality has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So maybe these people with a little production had difficulty with pumping and milk removal. Um, but that really begs the question of like, what is the definition of this hospital grade pump? Does right. there information in the study on differences in suction that were experienced when people were using the settings they were told to use? Is there a difference in the stroke length of vacuum versus relaxed phase? Because I find that makes a huge difference in people's experience of milk removal and nobody's talking about it. Right. Um, and then lastly, I wanted to say, you know, that thing that you said real quick of like, some of those people got up to 1300 mLs by day 14. That's hyperlactation. Yes. Unless that person has twins. Yeah. So who is teaching these folks okay, if you're getting more than a liter a day of milk, you actually should pump for a shorter time and have less trauma and you're going to make it for the long haul if this is a small preemie who you have to pump for for months. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They certainly didn't address that. But yeah, um, I think uh, just that's a really good point that you made about the edema. So if someone has low production in this study and they've been pumping regularly, but they're not getting good milk removal, like using a very large flange. And that's why I said, like, they're not even talking about like how they fit flange sizes. So someone using, someone is using a 28 millimeter flange and not removing milk. Well, they're going to have areas of edema. And then the, uh, and that edema occurs because the, uh, their, their prolactin is being stimulated. So the cells are told to make the milk, but then the milk isn't being removed properly. And that causes localized edema, squish ducts, which we used to call plug ducts, but it's really, you know, squish ducts. And that, and that squish ducts, those squish ducts occur because of the compressed, the compressed ducts because of the surrounding swelling from the full alveoli, milk's not being removed, tight junctions open, there's edema, and then sodium level rises. So yeah, so that's actually, um, so that would maybe help someone who had fluctuating sodium levels to realize, oh yeah, there must be something going on with how I'm pumping or the frequency that I'm pumping or whatever. So there's a lot to learn. Um, and I would love to like start playing around with this in practice, you know, just to. Well, and I think it really made me think, you know, how there um, are guidelines out there that talk about if you're doing research related to lactation, what is the terminology that you should use? What is the definition of exclusive, et cetera? there needs to be development of some guidelines related to pump research that say, you can't just say we gave people pump guidelines. You need to have very specifics about people were told to use this setting. The vacuum was measured for this length of time. And yes, we use intention to treat. Perhaps people don't follow the directions they were given, but when we're going to talk about another study either today or in our next podcast that had to do with, you know, like some serious microbiologists and they wrote out in their study, we incubated it at this temperature with this percent CO2 for this many hours. Like 
another person could go into a lab and replicate their study and see if you get the same findings. And that is not the case with this research. Yeah. Oh, I should mention, you mentioned about attention to treat. Uh, well, one thing that was interesting about this Chinese study, this last one, um, just looking at pumps and volumes, uh, is that they said that people were excluded if they weren't following directions. <laughs> That's not intended to treat, right? And so I'm surprised that that didn't get caught by the reviewers as well. Um, that they I mean, you can analyze the statistics at the end and say, this is what we intended and this is what people actually did. But like, you know, if you're not having your milk production come up and you think, oh, maybe I should change to a, whatever the definition of is a hospital grade pump, that should be taken into account, not excluded. Right. And I think that they would have gotten more data had they actually allowed these people to stay in and then look at frequency of pumping and these other variables that would have been really helpful um, so, um, so, yeah, so that's our kind of conversation about secretory activation. And I'm, I'm excited for more studies and to talk more about that in the future. Um, yes, I am fascinated by that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're going to like significantly switch gears here to talk about something now for something completely different. So, um, one of the abstracts that you sent me was um, from the journal Cells, and it is titled Quantification of Female Chimeric Cells in the Tonsils of Male Children and Their Determinants um, by Boris Dimitrenko. Um, the study was out of France, and um, I believe it was from September of 2023. The um, I'm going to read through the abstract and then we may hit a few highlights. The factors influencing mother to child cell trafficking and persistence over children's lives have yet to be established. The quantification of maternal microchimerism was previously reported through HLA-based approaches, which introduced bias regarding the tolerogenic environment. Okay, I have to stop myself right now and explain some of these words or we're never going to get through it. Yeah, I mean, during pregnancy, we know that there is bidirectional cell trafficking between parent and child. So essentially, you know, the placenta is not bulletproof. There are um, <laughs> maternal cells that are going into the um, baby and vice versa. And that's sort of how we got, you know, like a few years back, you can have a blood test to to find out the sex of the baby without, you know, having to do something more invasive because some of those um, baby cells are floating around in the maternal bloodstream. Um, the process of those foreign cells becoming resident in the new host is um, termed fetal and maternal microchimerism. So essentially mm -hmm. you have some of the other um, person's cells in your body. And um, the other, I think, factor that plays into this in the immune system is there's a certain amount of tolerance that is necessary, um, meaning the immune system is not attacking those cells. It's not recognizing them as foreign and attacking them. And so that's what they mean when they're saying the tolerogenic environment. So these authors aim to identify cells of maternal origin, irrespective of the HLA repertoire. And this basically has to do with the fact that previous attempts to look at these cells the types of 
immunofluorescence tagging that they were doing to look for them was related to um, HLA markers. And they wanted in this study to ascertain the determinants of um, these microchimeric cells. So they did this case control study where they enrolled 40 um, male infants who were um, having surgery from January to October of 2022. And what they did when they were having their tonsils out was female cells were quantified in the infant's tonsil tissue um, by using cytogenetic fluorescent in situ hybridization. FISH, as it is commonly called, coupled with optimized automated microscopy. Out of the 40 infants, half had been breastfed for more than one month, a quarter for less than one month, and 10 children were never breastfed. XX cells, meaning those um, with female chromosomes, were observed in male tonsils in two-thirds of participants at a median density of five cells per 100,000. And in univariate analysis, child age was negatively associated with high female cell density. So there were less cells as they got older. And in exploratory multivariate analysis, previous breastfeeding is a likely determinant of the presence of these cells in the host, as was the rank among siblings. Um, so it says part of the benefit of breast milk for child health may therefore be driven by breastfeeding related microchimerism. Um, in the non-breastfed children, they did not have these cells. And if you were breastfed longer, you had more maternal cells in your tonsils. And we know tonsils are a big um, immune organ. And so it's fascinating to think that part of that um, may be related to the maternal cells helping the baby's immune system to come to maturity. This is like a whole new uh, way to interpret you are what you eat. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's more than just eating. <laughs> this is now my favorite podcast that we have ever done. That's really fascinating. Um, so what do, do they hypothesize? So, oh, I have another question for first. Okay. So I don't know of any ENT doctors who would be particularly interested in this. So how did ENT doctors, uh, like get involved in a study that's so geeky about breast milk. It must have been like an ENT doctor's like partner or friend. Or something. I, I mean, I don't really think that ENTs had anything to do with it. I think they just worked with the hospital lab and was like, hey, you're just going to throw away those tonsils anyway. <laughs> Let's take a look at them. Oh, that's really interesting. And so what do they hypothesize? Like the role of these maternal cells in the tonsils? I like mean, a- they do. They say that um, infants with detectable maternal microchimerism at birth were shown to have improved polyfunctional CD4 T-cell response to the BCG vaccine. And um, they have, other researchers have described exclusive breastfeeding as the determinant of higher microchimeric cell density. And so I think so- that it is... Um, I thought immunology was the very hardest part of medical school. So I have to say, I'm going to have to do a lot more reading if I want to have a much deeper discussion of this, but it's just so cool. Yeah, no, that's one of the frustrating things for me is like, I was like, I went to medical school before they had the term immunology. So (laughs) 
they had they had the polio vaccine. That's right. Sock had the polio vaccine. But no, I mean, basically, <laughs> I feel like this this whole field has just zoomed forward. And even medical students are not spending a lot of time learning this stuff because they have to learn all this clinical stuff. And so, oh my gosh, I mean, there was something else in another article we're going to do in our next podcast. And I literally was like, I don't know that word. And I looked it up and it, you know, it's a genetic um, way that molecules are um, a, like adjusted by our body to help with the expression. And I was like, oh, because the first study on it came out the year before I graduated med school when I was in clinicals. And so like, I wasn't aware of that and it's, you know, been 20 years and now there's a lot more that's known about it. And so right. I apparently right. need to do this podcast to keep up with the times. Right. I mean, when I was in my clinical practice in family medicine, some of the medical students would say, let me take a look at that CT. Let me look at some of those cuts. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not something I ever, like we didn't have CT in MRI when I was in medical school. And so we, I never learned how to read them because That's of that. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that just shows that, you know, in this practice of medicine, the benefits of being a young whippersnapper versus having all of the experience because there are patients that I take care of now that I'm like you know nobody taught me this but I've seen enough now that I know oh this is how you deal with this or this is how you talk to humans and it takes time it does take time yeah well the beat keeps marching on and you know we're focusing in one thing and all this all the underlying science is kind of just bubbling up and we're trying to understand it so yeah probably need a sabbatical to get that so thanks karen this was great we had a lot of great conversation and uh i'll talk to you soon sounds good bye Anne. bye for questions regarding this podcast please contact us through our website at lacted.org we have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.